Hello and welcome back to Deconstructing the Bible. I'm Jason Steffenhagen, the Associate Minister at The Well, United Methodist Church in Rosemont, Minnesota. And you are listening to Season 2 on the parables. And we are going to be diving into the parable of the two sons from the 21st chapter of the book of Matthew. Now, this parable is not as, say, well-known or popular or taught in Sunday school like the parable of the Good Samaritan is. But this parable is a doozy. This parable is intense, and I am thrilled to be diving into it. I think it has so much to teach us and warn us and invite us into. It's going to be fun to explore. But before we dive into it, let me just bore you for a minute with uh, a little discussion, conversation on political theology. Now, when I was in my master's program, I took a class on political theology, wrote some stuff on political theology, and I loved it. I loved studying how theology and politics influence one another. I think there is such a fascinating study when we dive into those things. So if you ever want to corner me sometime and ask me about political theology, we could go on for hours and hours and hours. But let me just give you a couple of quick hits. So faith influences politics is one way to look at it. Our faith influences our politics. What do I mean by that? Simply that our faith influences the causes and the policies that we think are most important. Sometimes they impact how we vote. So if there's a candidate out there who is campaigning on the policies or the causes that we identify with and that we think our faith would be in favor of, then there's a chance and a likelihood even that we would vote for that candidate politically. And so our faith is influencing our politics. But faith doesn't always just influence our politics, sometimes our politics influences our faith. What do I mean by that? Politics is, you know, by definition, if you look at it in Webster's, I think it's like the fourth definition. It's basically how we arrange ourselves in society, how we make sense of society, how we are lining up, how we are creating this thing called society and the way it all works together. Now, we live in an individualistic society. It's not hard to see this through American history. It's not hard to see it through the way we talk about things in families. We have a very individualistic mindset. I mean, not many family systems are encouraging their 30-year-olds to stay at home and live in the home or on the family property anymore. We want individuals to go to school, to get a job, to get their own place, to potentially even move away, to have their own individual unique experiences, to go establish themselves in the world. We have this individual mindset and we can see that when we then engage our faith, right? It's a personal faith. It's an individualistic faith. Jesus came to save me. I mean, this is why, you know, when you're young, it's, you know, not for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You get the bookmark where you can write your own name, right? For God so loved Jason that he sent his one and only son. We, we over-personalize this and we make it very individualistic. It's a way in which our political view of the world, our politics, has influenced our faith, influenced our own theology. Another way of looking at this is that theology is political. 
theology is political. Because theology is talking about the way we treat people, it's naturally going to be a political conversation. To think that theology and the study of God and who is God and how does God call us to live in the world, to think that that's not a political conversation is kind of crazy. Of course it does. I mean, how we treat our neighbor is not simply a theological question. It's a political question, right? The question of who is my neighbor, we discussed this last time. Who is my neighbor? That's a political question. Who should I impact? Who should I serve? Who should I be looking out for? That's a political question. And the beauty, of course, is that Jesus doesn't say, well, here's the limited group you should be thinking about caring for on the side of. Instead, Jesus repurposes the question and says, sorry, it's not who is your neighbor. It's what does it mean for you to be neighborly? What does it mean for you to serve those around you, even if that person is your enemy? Theology is political. But also, fourth idea, politics is theological. Politics is theological. One of the stories that I read in a book by a guy named Kavanaugh, he wrote at the very beginning of his book. It's a very like kind of social scientific book, a lot of research, a lot of, you know, really in-depth stuff. But he started off with this really great story. He's like, how do you get an 18-year-old from Iowa to pick up a gun fly halfway around the world to defend a line in the sand between two people groups that he's never met before and have the willingness to potentially take a life. Right Now, I'm getting real serious real fast with this story that Kavanaugh talks about in his book. But really, how do you get someone who's 18 years old to believe so strongly in something that he's willing to fly halfway around the world to defend a line he can't see in the sand between two different groups of people he's never met and potentially take a life if it's not because he believes in something, if he doesn't believe in something. Being a soldier is about belief. Yes, it's about duty and it's about honor, but it's also about belief. And that can be a beautiful thing. I'm not criticizing that form of belief. I'm just pointing out that that is more than just a job. It's also about faith, believing that your cause is just, having faith that your leaders are just and making wise decisions for the actions that you are about to carry out in the world. So politics is theological. Politics is theological. Theology is political. Our politics influence our faith and faith influences our Politics. This is what it means to study political theology is to wrestle with all these different variables and how it comes together both theologically and politically. Now, here's the thing. Political theologians often will focus on how Jesus died because he threatened the power structures of the political establishment. Why did Jesus die? Because he threatened the power structures of the political establishment in Jerusalem including the temple politics. He was messing with the Pharisees. He was messing with with the Jewish leadership. And they used that threat to show how he was threatening the empire of Rome. And so because Rome was like, okay, I guess if you're right that he's claiming to be a king, well, there's no king but Caesar. So I guess he is worthy of a crucifixion, right? So why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because he threatened the power structures of the political establishment, the temple politics, and he ended up up dying at the hands of Rome as a threat to the empire. If you're in Jewish leadership, 
You can't have tax collectors giving money back to the people when they're supposed to be giving it back to Rome, right? That threatens your standing in the Roman Empire. That makes the soldiers uncomfortable when their money is being given back to the Jewish people. And so you can see why the Jewish establishment, the political establishment, the temple politics influenced their decision on what to do with Jesus. Now, let me just pause and say, yes, Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. I know that is the traditional Christian belief. Jesus died for our sins, making a way for us to be connected to God. Yes. But here's a question. What are our sins? What are our sins? They are personal, like selfishness and greed and envy and hatred. Those are all very real sins. But sins can also be corporate exploitation, oppression, bigotry, not seeing the image of God in the face of the other, especially those who would be considered the least of these. Sin can also be systemic. Sins can also be political. So when I say that Jesus died because he disrupted the poisonous political establishment and the corrupt power structures of his time, I'm not just saying that he died because of a political thing. I'm also saying he died for our sins because he died. He died because he was disrupting the systemic sins of the time. He was disrupting the way things were politically because they were sinful. They were marginalizing. They were hurting people. It was an entire system of sin that was being justified at the time, and Jesus came to disrupt the whole thing and announce the reign of God's kingdom, not the kingdom of Rome. And so this parable is about as abrupt as Jesus gets, because here's the thing, unlike other parables where his audience is people out in the countryside, he's talking to the commoner, he's talking to the regular Jewish person who's kind of being marginalized or being hampered or hindered by Rome or oppressed by Rome. No, this is Jesus talking to the powers that be. So let me set the stage for where this parable takes place. So we are coming right on the heels of the triumphal entry. You know, that Palm Sunday idea where Jesus comes parading into Jerusalem on a donkey and they're waving the palm branches and they're throwing the cloaks down. Hosanna, Hosanna, right? And they're all this excitement about Jesus. Well, it made people nervous, right? It made people nervous to the point where the Pharisees are like, are you going to let them keep doing this? Are you going to let them say these things about you? And what is Jesus's response? If they didn't cry out, the rocks themselves would cry out, right? So Jesus is going into a hornet's nest. We all celebrate you know, Palm Sunday as this glorious day where we're ushering in Jesus and it's this beautiful thing. But it was, it was a political show. It was Jesus kind of thumbing his nose at the establishment saying, you know, I'm, I'm here to disrupt things and the people know it and they like it. And this is what's happening. And then the next day after he goes in there and he's disrupting things, he goes to the temple and he clears the temple from all of the money changers. And I could dive into what was going on there, but ultimately they were exploiting the poor people and they were taking their money for the sacrifices that they needed to give. They were exploiting people and gaining money off of it. And this is the people in the temple. And they're, of course, upset when Jesus does this because not only does he 
upturn the tables, but then he starts healing the blind people and, and making other miracles happen. And even the children are shouting out, here is the son of David, here is the Lord. And so they are so excited that Jesus is there. And, and they even say, do you hear what these children are saying? They're saying, they're saying, praise God for the son of David. And Jesus is like, yeah, haven't you heard the scriptures? For they say, you have taught children and infants to give you praise. So Jesus is kind of, he's, he's diving in. He's saying, yeah, I hear what they're saying and they're not wrong. I mean, he's doubling down. He's tripling down. He's quadrupling down on this. He's going into Jerusalem on a donkey and people are praising him. He goes and clears the temple. He starts doing healings. He gets called the son of David and the Pharisees are challenging him back. And he's like, no, they're not wrong. This is the way it should be. So the day after Jesus clears the temple, he goes back to the temple and they challenge his authority. And instead of diving into what authority and by what authority and all that, he simply tells them a parable. He says, but what do you think about this? A man with two sons told the older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son answered, no, I won't go. But later he changed his mind and went anyway. Then the father told the other son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will. But he didn't go. Which of the two obeyed his father? Then the chief priests and the leaders answered, the first. Then Jesus explained his meaning. I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. For John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live, and you didn't believe him, while tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even when you saw this happening, the tax collectors and the prostitutes believing John, you refused to believe him and repent of your sins. You know, so often throughout this series on the parables, we've been asking, where's Jesus disrupting the status quo? Where's he flipping things on its head? Where is he, he's, is he grinding in and, and helping them see this, this thing? And where is he upending things? Well, this one, you don't have to ask the question because he tells you, I tell you the truth, right? He's just telling you straight to their faces how backwards things have gotten. He's saying that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering into the kingdom before the religious leaders. Why? Because they are being moved by what, what John is offering them, an opportunity to turn, an opportunity to return to God, an opportunity to, to reconnect with the right way to live. And yet the Pharisees and the religious leaders ignored John. And even when they saw this great transformation happening in the lives of tax collectors and prostitutes, they still didn't believe John. So here's Jesus defending not only John, who the religious establishment didn't like, he's also defending the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Now here's the thing about the tax collectors and the prostitutes. They were the two groups of people that were probably closest to the Roman Empire. In alignment. The tax collectors, it's obvious, they're the ones going around collecting taxes on behalf of Rome. They are going from door to door, house to house, sometimes even with the Roman soldiers behind them, demanding that people pay their taxes. And the thing is, most tax collectors wouldn't just collect the right amount of taxes for Rome, they would also 
take a little off the top for themselves. So if the tax code asked for 20%, they would oftentimes ask for 30 or 40% of an income so that they could make money even more. There are some historians that say that at this time in history, there was a thing called triple taxation, where they were getting taxed by Rome, the the tax collectors were collecting money, and then there was the temple tax. They were getting taxed when they went to the temple to offer their sacrifices. So there was triple taxation going on for the common Jewish person, and it was sometimes upwards of 90% of one's income. So can you imagine living off of 10% of your income? Can you imagine a system that requires that type of payment in order to live in it peaceably. That is not a system that is for the people, that is serving the people. That's a broken, sinful system when there are people skimming off the top at such great margins that the average person couldn't even keep a fraction of their own wealth. And so Jesus is just pointing this out straight to their faces, that the tax collectors are going into the kingdom of God ahead of time. So I mentioned that the tax collectors were close to the Roman people because they're the ones collecting the taxes. But what about the prostitutes? Well, the prostitutes would often be camped or live or work near the Roman soldiers because that's who would often be taking advantage of a prostitute. And so the prostitutes were mostly connected to the Roman soldiers and near them. And so not only were they doing something uh, that was not looked highly upon, but they were doing it with the very enemy that was oppressing them. And so the prostitutes and the tax collectors were seen as those in closest proximity to the Romans. And so the Jewish leadership would have seen them as as outcast as possible. They would have seen them as the last who would have been righteous, the last who would have been close to the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus says, because they listened to John and were willing to change their mind, willing to repent, willing to go in a new direction, Teshuva, metanoia, these words we talked about last season, when because they were willing to turn towards the good and embrace a new and different and dynamic and beautiful way of living, they were encountering the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven in this new way of being in the world, this new way of living. And so they were closer to God's kingdom than these religious leaders who didn't even want to listen to John. So with all this having been said and all this set up, I think there are three big questions that we may need to wrestle with because of this parable. First thing, where are we all talk? Because the Pharisees and the religious leaders were like the son who says, yes, father, yes, yes, I'll go and work in the fields, and then doesn't do it. That son is all talk and no substance, all talk, no obedience, all talk and no follow through. So where are we in our lives all talk? What parts of our faith are we saying, yeah, 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 I'm forgiving, I'm forgiving, but then we actually are holding grudges and holding on to bitterness. Where are we saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I make room for people, I make room, but then we keep people at a distance or we keep people out of our community. Where are we all talk? Where are we saying 
that were on the side of the marginalized and the oppressed, but then not doing anything about it. Where are we all talk? And I'll be honest, that's a convicting question. I need to ask myself, where is Jason Steffenhagen all talk and no substance? Where am I saying all the right things, maybe even representing all the right things, but then not following through on being and doing and being obedient to the right things? Where am I all talk? The second question, what systems am I a part of that need to change? What systems am I a part of that need to change? What things am I operating in? What, what programs, what you know, ways of doing things am I contributing to that need to change? What, you know, what, what do I have the power to influence? You know, and we all have way more power than we think we do. We all have way more power to speak into the systems of our world than we think we do. Now, it, it might not be something that we can solve in an afternoon, but there are people out there that are day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, relationship by relationship, one at a time, moving the world in a healthier direction. They are advocating for things that need to change, systems that need to be overturned. They're doing it one court case at a time. They're doing it one relationship at a time. They're doing it one petition at a time. They are finding ways to make their voice heard. They're finding ways to show the world, to show people in power that there is something wrong with the way the systems are working and how they're not helping people, how they're not actually making the world a better place. So what needs to change? What systems do I actually have the ability to impact and to see things go in a healthier, more kingdom-driven direction? And I don't mean kingdom-driven as in we now need to be the ones in charge, but no, in a loving direction, a way that looks out for the least of these, a way that is um, encouraging hospitality, that is encouraging unity, that is encouraging taking care of our neighbor. And remember, the neighbor is not just the person that's on your in-group. The question is, how are you being neighborly, right? Because everyone is your neighbor. The final thing, the final question before a final observation. Final question is, what new is being birthed around us? What new is being birthed around us and can we see it? You know, the thing about the Pharisees is they actually watched the tax collectors and the prostitutes go to John and get baptized and start living in a more dynamic, right, healthy, shalom trajectory way. They actually witnessed transformation in their midst and still they didn't want to give in and let their power go. They didn't want to ask better questions. They didn't want to explore new ideas. They didn't want to say, what is going on on the fringes of our society? What is going on that people's lives are being transformed? And what does that mean for me? They saw that something new was happening and they did nothing. So what new is being birthed and can we see it? Can we, in our own uncomfortability, ask better questions, do a little exploring? Can we get curious about something? I mean, I'll be honest, when I see something new, I'm a skeptic. I'm not curious. I get skeptical. I dismiss. I look away. I don't like things that are new because 
they challenge me, they push me, they make me have to think, they make me have to potentially act differently. And I would rather be comfortable than have to be transformed. And so I need to ask this question, what new is being birthed around me and can I even see it? And then if I can see it, am I willing to do something about it? So those are the three questions I think we need to sit with based on this parable. Where are we all talk? Where are we all talk and no obedience, no substance, no doing? Where are we all talk and no follow through? What needs to change in our world? What systems are we a part of? What things do we have access to that need changing in order to be more equitable for our world and for people around us? How can we join the long obedience, discipleship, that long walk in a same direction where we are willing to see things through and see change through? What needs to change? What systems need to change? And then what new is being birthed around me and can I see it? Am I willing to have eyes to see and ears to hear? The final thing, and this is the hopeful part, is the language of this parable. It's seemingly in and out. There's the tax collectors and the prostitutes who have understood and absorbed and have started to live out the message of John and followed in this new way of repentance. And then there's the Pharisees and the religious leaders who have not. And so it seems like there's these two groups, those that are in this new way of being in the world and those that are still defending the old way of oppression. There's an in and an out. There's a good, there's a bad, there's an us and a them. It seems very divisive. But when you look at the language, when you look at the language, there's actually hope for the Pharisee. Because yes, it says that the prostitutes and the tax collectors have understood and have have gone after and have listened to John and done the things and are living in a more dynamic way, and the Pharisees have not. But it doesn't say there's no hope for them. It just says that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are getting into the kingdom of God before the Pharisees and the religious leaders, meaning there's still hope for them. In his commentary, Hultgren writes, the door is left open for the Pharisees finally to repent and enter the kingdom. This is not about exclusion. It's recognizing that they're not there yet. And that last word, yet, is such an important word. It's an important word for us. It's an important word for the Pharisees. It's an important word because it means there's an opportunity to repent, to teshuva, to metanoia, to change the way we think, to go in a new direction. There's an, there's an opportunity to feel the remorse that the first son felt and to change directions. We need to be like that first son. We all are. We're all people who have probably at one point in our lives said, nope, don't really want to do it. Don't really want to be a part of it. Don't really want to follow through. That's not my thing. Nope, I don't care. I want this in my life. And then there's a yet, there's an opportunity, there's a possibility of transformation, of repentance, of remorse. There's an opportunity to go in a new direction, to return to the good. It's there for the Pharisees and it's there for us. And that is hopeful. That is God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Thanks again for joining me for Deconstructing the Bible. If you're interested in 
furthering the conversation, check out the show notes as there's going to be a Zoom link so that we can connect at 1 o'clock on Thursday. So please join the conversation 1 o'clock on Thursday. Check out the Zoom link in the show notes in order to do that. Thanks again, and we look forward to catching up with you again next week. Thank you.